Race doesn't limit you from anything. It's all about I feel like they learn about race from. I teach them. Can even aspire about who you are with somebody else that looks like you. And love who you are. love racial identity. This is In My Skin, a podcast about race and childhood. I'm Adam Flangen. Watching artist and illustrator Floyd Cooper create art is like watching a magic trick. Using an eraser on a special kind of canvas, he creates images seemingly out of nothing. Listen to the oohs and ahs he gets from an onlooking crowd as he demonstrates his technique at the 2004 National Book Festival. I'm just going to see if we can put a few simple shapes here very quickly just to show you how something begins to emerge. Can you see it yet? Let me erase a little bit more. You can uh, add the smallest of detail with this eraser. It's really, really easy to do. As an art novice, it's incredible to watch him turn a blank vessel into, in this case, a measured portrait of a Native American person in mere seconds. If you're confused by the description, trust me, Floyd explains it much better in the interview. What struck me about the technique, though, was how the dark sepia tones on the empty canvas are the perfect way to establish skin tones of characters. Turns out, that's part of why Floyd Cooper creates art the way he does, to showcase not only black characters, but characters of all different skin tones, too. Race isn't just part of his work. It is at the core of every piece he creates. Cooper has illustrated more than 100 books, and has taken home multiple Coretta Scott King Awards for books like The Blacker the Berry, one of his first collaborations with author Joyce Carol Oates. But we started off by talking about his own childhood, growing up in Oklahoma and bouncing around to just about every school Tulsa had to offer. Uh, well, uh, in, uh, I believe it must have been, oh man, second or third grade, uh, there was a white student in our class, and he was uh, uh, a young man. Uh, uh, not he didn't have there, were, there weren't any other uh, of his race in our in our class anyway, and um, he was um, gifted in science. And so, whenever we did things that required sort of scientific things, like hooking up the light system for our spelling bee. You know the buzz-in lights and all that. He, he he would do all the wiring and stuff like that, and uh, we became friends. He and I were good friends, and um, because I was also rather um, on the on the upper end as far as uh, um, ability uh, at that level, so I, I made um, A's, good grades, and that sort of thing. So I was in a certain sort of zone, I guess you could say. Uh, I was trying, fighting most of my career to not be the teacher's pet, you know, because um, I was trying to fit in with my friends. And uh, so there was a little bit of um, dumbing down on my part for a while there, just trying to, so so I wouldn't be too, too bright. And uh, that's kind of how things started. When I met this guy, I forgot his name. Uh, he was also very bright. We, we were very, very good friends. So I had someone else that I could... Uh, sort of hang out with and relate to on, on that level, on an intellectual level, I guess you'd say. As intellectual as second grade could be, possibly be. <laughs> so was race something that was discussed uh, at home? 
Well, yeah, I mean, my folks, we all followed the, uh, you know, the politics of the day and that whole context, the climate of, of what was going on. I, did, I do remember being in third or fourth grade, probably third grade. Uh, we were outside playing. It was very cold, and, the, the, you know, the grass was yellow, and uh, it was chilly, and uh, all the kids were running over towards a, a hurricane fence that sort of sealed in the playground. And we grabbed onto the fence, and I looked through, and I see what they were running for. It was a big black limousine with uh, flags on all four corners. And there was a, an entourage of men coming up to the fence. And uh, it turned out to be uh, that was uh, uh, President Johnson's uh, uh, car. And he had pulled over to, to come up to the fence to uh, greet some of the, the students there at this uh, all-black school. And I can remember distinctly putting my fingers through the whirlpool fence there, and he uh with his fat thumb and forefinger pinched my finger. And I, I, I only saw him from the back as he was walking off. But I still remember the day I met President Johnson. Huh? <laughs> as far as uh, the politics, uh, we, we, you know, we were President Kennedy, and my, my mother would always tell us the, the facts about what was really going on, particularly uh, when the assassination of Dr. King and all that happened, and, uh, of course, the assassination of President Kennedy. We looked through all that, both Kennedys, and... and um, so, you know, we weren't shielded from any of that. We were given the full view and the full story behind all that. Did How how did your uh, parents talk about race with you? Well, my, uh, my folks were divorced uh, when, I, when I was young, very young. So it was mostly my mother uh, raising us. Uh, my dad was actually shot by a white man on Greenwood Avenue. Uh, he was shot in the back and through the back of his neck, and uh, he he survived. But uh, it was a pretty traumatic experience for me, being the oldest in my family, um, to you know to sort of live through that, and with the understanding that I had, uh, being old enough to understand what had, what had gone on. But um, that was that was my one of my earliest uh, sort of. Uh, uh, incidents uh with dealing with uh with race man that's it's terrible their their father got shot how did how did you uh how did what was the incident what was the things that led up to the the yeah. shooting yeah they really always you, doing that and how they did pardon? you process it like i guess i guess as being a young kid going well, <laughs> well we, we were just happy that he lived you know and uh, that he was able, was able to he actually now this is my dad was sort of uh on the wild side, I guess. He actually escaped from the hospital on a bed sheet because he didn't want to be operated on. Uh, there was a bullet in his head about an inch from getting to where his brain was, and they told him that it was a very risky operation and uh, that um, they couldn't guarantee the outcome. And so rather than go through that, he just sort of said, I'm going to stay where it is, go without the operation, and he climbed out the window of the hospital. So what? So what was that like for you? Kind of uh, as I mean, that's a pretty uh, dramatic way to be to have a really experience with race, having a white man shoot your father. Yeah, well, it didn't really it didn't really impact me in the way that uh, it was like a purely racial thing. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. my father drank and hung out a lot down in the juke honky tonks and the juke joints down there on. Greenwood, and so it could have been a white man or anybody that could have shot him. I mean, he's down there in that environment, you know, but it just happened to be a white man, and that's how I processed it. Okay. What about uh, what about kind of media as a child? Was there any uh, um, books or shows or anything that you watched that showed uh, 
the African-American experience that spoke to you? Oh, no, no. We didn't see much African-Americans on TV at, mm-hmm. at that point. I'm, I was born in uh, 56, and so I grew up in Tulsa through the, uh, the 60s. And uh, we didn't really have much as far as um, things like that TV shows. Uh, I can remember Julia, which was a black TV show that came on back in the day. And uh, I remember when Flip Wilson got his TV show. And um, so there were incremental sort of little things that happened throughout the years, but I, I don't really have a timeline for it. You know how your memory just sort of matches everything together here? I could probably have taken the time to go back and look. I never thought about sort of piecing together a timeline of the cultural impacts mm-hmm. on on me as, as a child, so it would take me a moment to go back and try to give you a oh. an accurate, a logical. But I remember Julia, I remember Flip Wilson, and then later probably Red Fox and they, those shows, uh, uh, Sanford, so I guess that came a little bit later, but uh, that, uh, that was very slim pickings. Were, was Ezra Jack right. Keats, was that, was there, were those books around uh, whenever you were growing up? Oh, we didn't have uh, picture books and that sort of thing in my in my environment. Uh, there could have been a few in the library. I do remember having one book. Uh, it was a little book. Um, well, there was a collection of Anderson's fair, uh, fairy tales. Could have been Anderson's or Grimm, the Grimm brothers. But um, I think it was, I do recall one little uh, golden book. Uh, one was about a bear, but my favorite one was about a little fire truck. And there was no cover on it, so I don't remember what the cover looked like. But a friend recently sent me a cover of that book. I didn't know they were still making it and it had the cover on it. But I remember the, the little red fire engine book that I had. Some of the pages ripped or whatever. And uh, so that was my earliest picture books that I can recall. I didn't really have an experience with picture books until after I'd gone to college and uh, was hanging out with my girlfriend who wanted to be a teacher. And uh, we attended. I attended some of her classes and went through some of the homework that she had. And one of the assignments had to deal with putting together a picture book list. She was an early childhood major, and um, we uh, we took a, a sort of a picture book kind of a, a class for some extra credit. So how did yeah. how did that experience with that kind of introduction to picture books as an older uh, adult, how did that experience kind of show you, how did you come to understand the impact of children's books then? None whatsoever. It was just a course. It was extra credit, and I, you know, I like some of the stories, but it didn't. It wasn't anything that sort of hit me to something that, I, oh, hey, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I was uh, my my whole goal was to grow up, become an uh, an illustrator at that point, become an illustrator, and get into the uh, studio market and uh, advertising illustration, mm-hmm. uh, where some of my heroes were making uh, huge bucks, making money in advertising illustration and those types of uh, jobs, studio artists, working for studios. Uh, and so that was my, my real drive. That's what drove me to work for, um, uh, initially to get to New York. It was on, uh, after, and I'm going to jump ahead a bit, it was after having arrived in New York that this was one of the, air, the doors that opened for me. And uh, that's how I ended up in picture books. So how did the door open for you? Well, I stumbled around looking for agents and, uh, you know, pounding the pavement, uh, meeting a whole lot of uh, sort of fly-by-night situations. Some worked out, some didn't. Getting little jobs here and there, but eventually found a, an agent uh, 
who was able to give me work, lots of work. And uh, I was in the textbook industry. It was a company called Kirchhoff Wahlberg. And um, they were able to give me work right away, and I, I sort of found a way to, to piece together a, um, a good income to pay my bills. Not a good income, but enough money to pay my bills and, and remain in New York without returning home and uh, by getting these textbook jobs to do. And um, they happened to also be connected with the publishing industry. And unbeknownst to me, they were taking my work around to the publishing houses. And one that they took it to was uh, Patty Gouch at Penguin Books. And she saw my work, and uh, they wanted to um, ask me first, I guess it was sort of like a test, I guess, to illustrate one spread from a book called Grandpa's Face. Mm -hmm. And I illustrated it, and then they came with the rest of the book and uh, asked me to to make the pictures for it. And I thought it was another textbook job because it had come through that agent. And I did it very, very fast, too fast, actually. Completed the art and sent it back in and comes back with my name on it written by um, Eloise Greenfield, and that was Grandpa's Face, my first picture book. At what point in your writing of children's books did you start to understand the impact that these books could have? You're illustrating a picture uh, it was, book. It was a gradual thing, and I can't pinpoint one exact uh, sort of moment, but um, it was pretty obvious uh, to anyone that these books were for children and that the images that you made would be impactful to children. And that little class that I took with my girlfriend in college, uh, where we were able to, part of the, um, part of the, the plan was to uh, put together a children's book list. And these children, this children's book list would conceivably be one that she would have used in her classroom. And so there would be criteria involved with her picking and selecting those books and how she would apply that to her curriculum for, for her kindergarten classroom. And so we knew that, that books sort of played into a child's education, and that sort of brought some of that stuff back to me as I was working on picture books, and I began to realize the impact of it. But it was also uh, the fact that Grandpa's face came, in, uh, came out with quite a splash. I mean, uh, people said wonderful things about it. I got lots of praise in the media. Um, I immediately got some more contracts to do. I mean, it was a pretty successful entry into the market, I think. And... Um, I began to do um, speaking engagements, and I would meet these people involved in the children's book industry, and they started, they took me under their wing, basically. I met, for instance, Augusta Baker, the famed librarian from uh, the New York City era, 1930s, you know, she was a famed librarian, along with uh, uh, Carolyn Worker-Fields, of course, in here in Pennsylvania. Uh, she was a white lady, Augusta was black, and they had together formed a sort of thing that they would have uh, uh, to, to uh, sort of drive their careers. And she pulled me aside and told me what that was. And, and it was the idea that what she wanted to do was to put a book about a little black child into the hands of a little white child and put a, a book about a little white child into the hands of a black child. And I'm sure um, Mrs. Phil felt the same way. Um, she was uh, totally different. She was a mirror, probably a mirror personality of Augusta here in New York. Uh, she was in Pennsylvania, and she wore long white gloves past her elbow and, you know, talked with a highly British accent, I, I believe. I've never heard her speak, but I've heard her described that way. And she only believed in the very best of a thing for a child. That was her sort of mantra. So together they would uh, try to give the uh, children something more than just um, eye candy or just a, 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 
uh, entertainment. They, they, they strive to make the picture book a meaningful experience uh, in a way that will impact uh, society as a whole and sort of uh, help to bring us together. They knew that uh, picture books and, and children were the front lines when it came to making the world better because as children get older, they get set in their ways, and, of course, adults, you can never change their minds about anything, so I'll get them, but, but imp, uh, books could be a very impactful, and they, they pass uh, this sort of thing on to me early on. We wanted to take a quick break to thank some of our sponsors that helped make In My Skin possible. In My Skin is part of the University of Pittsburgh Pride program, which stands for Positive Racial Identity Development and Early Education. Pride is funded by the W.K. Kellogg and Henry L. Hillman Foundations. Thank you both for making this possible. Now, back to my interview with Floyd Cooper. Before we get in any further into talking about some of the specific books in your, I want to talk about the uh, the process that you do, how you create this art. And yeah. it, it's fascinating to me. I mean, I've seen some videos and you refer to it as erasing. And in watching yeah. your demonstrations, it kind of, it like, it has the appearance as if, like there's something beneath the background that you're like unveiling as you wipe it away, but it's obviously not. It's you erasing art. You're you erasing and creating at the same time. So you can yeah. probably describe, describe this much better than me. So how how do you describe your process? Well, yeah, I, I suppose looking at it from from uh, the audience point of view, uh, it would look like I guess I was erasing something that was there. But what I'm looking at when I do it is I'm focusing on the shape itself and how it connects to the next shape next to it. And so it's more of a, a surface thing for me, um, not so much what's underneath the paint, but just what happens as these shapes on, on top of the surface sort of connect together. And uh, it's something that um, after all this, these years of doing it, uh, it just, it's almost instinct, instinctive. And uh, it's, it's much easier for me to actually do it and show than to try to explain um, how it happens, but uh, for, for me, that's what it is. It's just a matter of uh, erasing uh, the shapes that are on the surface of the of the background and sort of letting it come out, letting it evolve on its own, basically. I'm just a bystander. The <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> picture paints itself. <laughs> there you go. If only it was that easy. <laughs> the, um... the Ouija board or something. I don't know. I just sort of... Um, uh, you know, it, it, it's something that develops after having done it for a long time. It sort of why, why I guess it looks the way it does. So, yeah. so in the process, after erasing your before you add color, you're left with the at least in the, in the images that I saw. You're left with like a monochromatic image with various shades of more right. or less like one color and. So I'm wondering because obviously so many of the uh, or not obviously but so many of the children that you and so many of the characters that you illustrate are African American in a, a varying skin shades and colors, and that's right. So I'm wondering if that having the that monochromatic the the shading and everything if that helps you in any way um, does, whenever you're at, and thinking of adding color and creating different skin tones for people. Uh, yes, uh, you really tapped on to something. Are you an artist? I am not, but I am taking that as a very high compliment coming from you. <laughs> well, yeah, you've you've really keyed in on exactly what's going on there. I, I use that burnt umber color because it's uh, it's present in um, 
everyone's skin, no matter what race, just varying degrees. To me, the brown, uh, the burnt umber is like melanin, right? Mm-hmm. And so I just sort of take away more you know, or less, depending on the shade of the uh, the complexion that I'm that I'm after. But it's always always middle ground. Uh, I can go darker, or I can go lighter uh, after I've done the initial um, erasing of the images and shapes. So what you see in that monochromatic image is just sort of like a a middle tone, meant to be sort of like an underpainting. And uh, I go on top with white paint and dark paint to sort of separate the tones even more, depending on the situation. Okay, so so that that makes sense. The um, and it's a it's really it's really cool to I will have we'll include video uh, links to this uh, on our website racepride.pit.edu um, to show people how uh, they can hear uh, how can they so they can watch what what it is we're talking about because like you said it's easier to watch than for us to yeah. explain. Now, where did you get the video up, I might ask? Is it, uh, I believe there's a video on the Library of Congress has one back from 2004. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was in the tent there, I guess, right? Uh, yeah, 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 I believe so. But Okay, all right. It's really cool to see. Um, so I'm wondering, Floyd, how does how do you think your identity as an African-American man has affected the type of books you want to illustrate as well as the type of books you are asked to illustrate? Oh, well, I take on that, uh, the mantra of, um, being a role model and, uh, contributing to the, uh, you know, to the, to the, uh, uh, the voice of, uh, that we're trying, you know, for diversity. And, uh, I, uh, take that on, uh, full force, uh, fully because, um, uh, you know, I'm all, I'm all for that. I know some want to just simply, and initially I was that way. I wanted to simply uh, illustrate what other artists were illustrating and not be pigeonholed or, or, or sort of confined to one sort of cultural neighborhood. And that was important back uh, in the 80s when I was working on books. But um, uh, there are other issues. The climate has changed, and it's more uh, important, I believe, now to not so much uh, be so limited in that. Now, there are people who are actually had started illustrating outside of their culture neighborhood to a bit of a, a backlash with the On Voices, um, the On Voices movement, you know, that movement where they feel that um, uh, uh, black stories should be told by black illustrators and authors, black creators should be the one whose voices we see when it comes to the, you know, the, the books that are, Produced about black culture, and so, um, and likewise, I'm sure with other people of color in their own areas as well, like Latina and uh, maybe even Asian. You know, um, but, so there is a big push right now, and I can feel it. It's probably got a, still a ways to grow as far as as big as it'll be, but I can see it kind of on coming. You know, this own voices movement, uh, mm-hmm. and so it, it just uh, sort of shows that uh, you have to be careful. Uh, when you do that sort of thing. But, you know, I really don't put the onus on the creators. I think creativity is something that shouldn't be hindered no matter what. If you feel like writing a story about Louis Armstrong or whatever, no matter what your race is, you have some some insight in that, and you, you have done your homework, and you know exactly what it is you're doing, and it's a real positive or a real uh, accurate or 
a, a valid message about Louis Armstrong, then you should be able to do that. Um, I believe that the onus is on the gatekeepers, the people who publish the books. They do need to have more opportunities for black creators, Latino creators, uh, creators of color, because um, uh, that is not uh, being addressed as it should be. I don't have statistical numbers or anything to break down my particular stance on this, but I, I can uh, say that I have been uh, to several conferences and things, and I have heard people talk about it, and I know I wouldn't be surprised that it, if it were uh, is, that it is the case that uh, there is a lack of um, diversity when it comes to the creators of uh, uh, the people who write and uh, write these the stories that uh, are about different cultures. I've illustrated several books with white authors based on a black um, uh, either figure or story. And so, and it continues today. And you know, I, I wouldn't. And many of them are my friends, you know. And I don't mean to slight their efforts one bit. And you can't really blame them. They're just expressing their creativity. I think it's wonderful. What better way to to understand or to have empathy for someone than to actually walk in their shoes? And and I don't think there's a better way to do that than to take on someone's story and learn them and and read about them and research them and then know their story. Uh, and and really come close to how they lived, and, and that's the only way you're going to make a good book about them anyway. So um, to do that, to go through that process, is a, is a great way to actually uh, gain empathy, as well as uh, having the book reach uh, market. Now, there's another sort of thing that happens in life where people tend to gravitate to things that are like themselves. Uh, we pick up books that are about ourselves. Uh, we tend to... Uh, only want to get things that are about ourselves. And so uh, it takes a little bit of extra work to open up a book or to get a book that is about a different culture. First of all, there's not a full understanding of the culture. It takes a little bit of work to, to get to the point that you understand it. And that work is where things sort of hit the skids. You know, people, uh, this is <laughs> a slight on humanity, but we're lazy, basically. You know, we don't like to do work to find out things. That's why, uh, uh, that's why our political situation is currently where it is. You know, we just want to sort of simplify things and bring things down to its simplest form so it's easily digestible so that we can move on, you know, and not have to work for it, you know, and not have to do the research to find out who's the best candidate, you know. So I'll just stick with my political party and just cross the board, boom, you know. Um, so um, that's basically... And actually, I could talk about that a little bit more, but uh, I, I happen to believe that that leads us into certain situations that we're in now. You know, uh, if you look, for instance, at um, this whole blackface thing, uh, and and you realize where blackface came from, not many people know. They think it's just you know something that you could do for Halloween or whatever, and it'd be okay to do that. Not realizing the history of that and learning the history of that takes work, you know, and no one wants to go back and find out why that is, why that happened, you know, why Jim Crow actually, be, you know, became a thing, you know, no one wants to know that, that, that it was actually started by a white man, a minstrel show, and he started jumping Jim Crow as a minstrel act, and boom, Jim Crow was born, and, uh, you know, it was the first blackface character, it was a minstrel show, no one wants to know about that, you know, and uh, they just want to basically have it all sort of readily, easily accessible, and that leads to problems because 
many things are complicated about um, uh, our different cultures, and we have to uh, be willing to take the time to learn about them. And that's why I like children's books, because um, we can tend to put out historical things about ourselves and, and uh, sort of break stereotypes and show that we're full human beings at a level where we can be impactful to society, the, the young level, you know. And uh, that's why I really still enjoy doing what I do, breaking those stereotypes. There was a guy, uh, Chinua Achibi, who said that the whole idea of a stereotype is to simplify, to mm -hmm. simplify. And you make it simple because that's the way you're going to get people to digest it, right? The problem is that stereotype becomes a lot of negative uh, sort of implications that can be characterized to uh, to classify an entire uh, an entire people, and uh, it can enable you to then deny them their full rights of citizenship based on you know certain traits that you see portrayed in a stereotype, and uh, these things perpetuate. And before you know it, you have a whole class of people being denied citizenship or being denied certain aspects of humanity that would be afforded to uh, to others whose, whose culture may be closer to something that you can understand. So it's this lack of understanding in the world that, that we're fighting against. And I've been at this for a few years now, and um, I would have hoped that we would have made some progress, but uh, I understand now that it's going to take a while, it's going to be slow, but we shouldn't give up, we should keep going. And uh, so I really welcome um, uh, black story and, and stories from other races and other cultures and a sharing of these, these things because this is what's going to bring us together. And it's at that point that we're learning about the world that it has its most impact. And that's why picture books, I believe, are very important and uh, to the whole mix of, of a early education and the things that, they, that are learned in the classroom, of course. But uh, picture books is one way that I can help to contribute to that whole thing. And I, think, I don't mean to wax on too much here. No, not at all. I think that your books are special, too, in that they they make this the world different worlds that you're talking about accessible to people in with your imagery. I feel like so much of your imagery is... Uh, there, there's like a kindness that's rooted in a lot of your imagery, and there's a lot of uh, care and love shown to the characters that you illustrate. And it's also interesting to me how they have like um there's a lot of historical figures that you've illustrated and uh and i know uh and that's uh, it was interesting because i had read that you also weren't not a big fan of history as a child and yet here you are <laughs> illustrating books about frederick Douglass, uh the ballad oh, yeah. janet collins langston hughes uh revolutionary war spy james lafayette like all these different uh people so i'm wondering if you see illustrating these figures as a way to present history and these different African-American figures to children in a way that might intrigue them, and maybe in ways that you weren't shown growing up. Well, exactly. I, in fact, if you don't mind, I may have to borrow that from you. <laughs> That's exactly what's going on there, I'm sure. Uh, I will say that I love history now, by the way. I, I love it a lot. And uh, I also follow politics a lot. Uh, more than I used to. I love. I didn't love baseball too much as a child. I love baseball now. So I mean, we we grow into things, right? So teachers, teachers, please uh, <laughs> have have hope that uh, yes, it will get better. You know, just what you're doing will go in and and it will pay off later, perhaps down the road. But 
Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, that's what I would like to do. I can remember what it was like as a child. You know, I still have that. Um, I believe it's a gift. It's the ability to 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 recall what that was like. You know, and then when I do a book about history, I hope to uh, make it a little bit more accessible, a little bit more interesting, and uh, uh, you know, to to help a student reach that epiphany a lot sooner than I did, mm-hmm. and perhaps start loving history a little bit earlier than I did. Yeah, hopefully based on something that I drew. Well, I think you're well on your way. Um, the I'm sure there's some kids that have seen uh, things differently uh, through your books, but um, yeah. I want to ask about the um, as I know you've worked, uh, you've illustrated and written some uh, books, and you've also been you've illustrated books written by um, other wonderful authors, and uh, one in particular, you seem to really have a connection with the late poet and author Joyce Carol Thomas and um, you both combined for several books um, and were honored by Credit Scott King Awards multiple times and, yes. uh, and I'm wondering what uh, how does having uh, that kind of connection the one and I only say that just because it seems like you two are in sync with the words and the pick everything just seems really in sync on the page and well, you are you are pretty amazing uh, to pick and, and and perceptive to pick these things out because you're ac- absolutely correct. She was my favorite author, and uh, uh, it, uh, it, there is something to that. It, it would seem. I think I could argue that based on my experience, that the connection you have with the text and with the author will play a role in its success and how, how you're able to sort of make a uh, reach deeper when creating it uh, and to pull out maybe perhaps a, a greater. Um, uh, a greater art, you know, because you're a little bit more in love with it. Yes, your your passion for your art does reflect. It does come out. You know, the level of, of passion that you have for what it is that you're illustrating, um, be it the the work of uh, uh, the the text, or maybe even the author. Although, of course, her work was as beautiful as she was. You know, Joyce uh, Carol Thomas. I don't know. It's just some sort of uh, accident. Sort of that happened there as far as our meeting. I, I didn't know she would happen to be from Oklahoma, mm-hmm. like myself. So we were actually accepting the Curtis uh, uh, Scott King Honor Award for Brown Honey and Broom Wheat Tea. And we were up on the dais, and then I realized from her introduction that she was from Oklahoma, a little t- town just north of where I grew up. She was from Parker City, and I was from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, and um, so it was pretty. Uh, I guess downright spooky, you know, <laughs> that these things, these books were happening this way, you know. Here it is with this author whose work I connected with, and perhaps it has something to do with who she was as a person growing up from the same part of the world that I was from. Maybe it has a lot to do with it. It's beyond my um, my uh, realm of uh, exp- explaining it, though, so I'll just sort of let it let it lie. But, um, yeah, she was a very special uh, special. Enjoyed tremendously every time she produced anything. I enjoyed not only reading it, but to be able to illustrate it as well as well was uh, was a blessing. And I think your connection Make is rest in peace. It, yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, your connection is particularly evident in uh, Black of the Berry or the Black of the Berry. And it's just, it's a powerful book, and it really takes a thoughtful approach to address, addressing difference in skin tones uh, between oh, African-American yeah. children. And so I'm wondering, uh-huh. I'm wondering just when illustrating that book, 
do you do you have some a particular audience in mind? Do you have anybody that you illustrate for when you're illustrating a book like that? Well, that particular book, uh, of course, we um, most African Americans can tell you that there's always been sort of this unsaid sort of thing uh, within the black community. There was a hierarchy uh, of skin tone, and uh, we all know the the jokes that were made, the memes, and the stories that went along with you know, being born of a certain complexion. It all goes back to life on the plantation, I'm sure, where um, the slave masters would implement this sort of hierarchy by uh, the way they treated the lighter hued or the lighter skinned slaves. They were mostly given jobs in the big house as opposed to having to live in the quarters where they kept the darker skinned people who also worked in the field and would <laughs> become even darker from all that hot sun. So, um, it, that hierarchy was established early on, and um, people, without realizing it, began to take on that sort of, um, um, not judgment, but that um, that sort of um, uh, status kind of a thing that was applied to the skin color. And it's still with us today in certain aspects. I don't know if you saw that recent post by the football player with his uh, white wife. He gave a toast. Uh, they, they both gave a toast, and they, they were with all other mixed-race couples, and they all toasted, here's to, <laughs> this is stupid, here's to light-skinned kids. And I was like, whoa, a lot of people were still upset about that, you know, that he would actually make the, a toast like that, you know. But I'm sure he was kidding, but some people don't take it that way. But yeah. it just let me know that these things are still out there, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's something that we talk about, I know, with a lot of our parents at the Pride program is just colorism in general. And it's something that yeah. a lot of people uh, don't, it, it, it seems like something that happens as kids and when you're young, but and then you don't quite re- really fully realize it until a little bit older. Well, it's the right. kind of things that happen. Uh, oh, yeah, really. So I want to get you out of here on this, Floyd. The I know you've illustrated many, many books. What's the, what's the count at currently uh, for the amount of books that you've illustrated? Uh, I believe it's 107. 107, uh, past the century mark. They probably, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's 107 by my count. My wife will probably tell you something different. <laughs> <laughs> um, she's probably counting strictly trade books, but I've done quite a few books that became trade books. And, um, you know, early on, before I had an agent, I got burned a few times by doing a book that was supposed to be just sort of a, a different type of book that became a trade book. And, you know, I'm counting those and uh, other books, sort of book series as well. But uh, if you were to uh, count purely trade books, uh, mass market trade books, uh, there would probably be at least 100 maybe. So so through which, so through this, through the process of illustrating, whether it's the impact of the book or their, uh, whether it's the process or the actual physical creating the art, where where do you derive the greatest satisfaction as an artist? Oh, it's still in the art. It's still the actual painting and, and seeing uh, uh, what comes from, from moving, uh, you know, paint materials and media around to, uh, to um, hit that, that perfect little chord that happens when, when a painting just sort of comes together and sings, you know, just sort of something that that sort of uh, happens almost on a sort of a, maybe a 
a musical level, you know. It's just something that happens uh, when, when it all comes together just right and it, it sings, you know. So it's still trying to get that. All right, Floyd Cooper, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, absolutely. In My Skin is a production of the University of Pittsburgh PRIDE program, which stands for Positive Racial Identity Development and Early Education. PRIDE is part of Pitt's Office of Child Development. You can find every episode of In My Skin at the PRIDE website, racepride.pitt.edu, where you can also find a video of Floyd Cooper demonstrating how he makes his art. Trust me, you want to check it out. It's something you have to see to believe. Music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. This episode was produced by me, Adam Flango, along with Pride Director Dr. Aisha White and Pride Director of Engagement Medina Jackson. Make sure to follow the Pride program on social media, and if you like the podcast, tell a friend about it. 